about cold and flu. I don't know about you, Dr. Kate, but earlier this season, well, it's been a very busy fall for me. I think a little busier than I would like. Mm -hmm. I enjoy each thing, but back to back with no space in between isn't really the best way to do that. Agreed. I hear you. And I ended up um, one day a month or so ago just feeling really a little achy, and I thought, that's like the flu. So explain the difference in cold and flu. Mm There is a big difference, and I'm glad to bring this up because I know lots of people will just use the term flu whenever they get sick. I've got the flu, and there is actually a difference between the cold and the flu. They're they're both caused by viruses, but different kinds of viruses. So cold viruses, there's over 200 different ones that commonly go around, uh, that go by different names. And so this is why there is no cure as well as no even attempt at a vaccine for colds because there's simply too many viruses to to even to even try. Um, but the good news about the cold viruses, even though there's lots of them, is they're typically milder. The symptoms will affect your head and, you know, you may get that sore throat, but often the symptoms stay in your head. So like runny nose, sore throat. Throat, but he knows uh, sore throat, throat, headache, stuffiness. Mm-hmm. Um, it may get down to the chest a little bit, but but generally it's a milder illness. You could technically go to work. You probably shouldn't. You should probably stay home and not infect everybody else. But if you wanted to take some sort of something and go to work, you could. It's it's doesn't really knock you out. It's it's generally a milder illness, even if it drags on. Mm-hmm. Now, some people do find that their colds go into their chest. Yes. Now, some colds will have a tendency to do that, depending on the virus, and some individuals. Individuals, that's their susceptibility, and they know everything goes to their chest. They get like a chesty bronchitis type um, situation. So that that can be an individual thing as well. Mm-hmm. And then the flu is also caused by a virus, different viruses, but typically fewer of them. There there are fewer, only a handful of flu viruses that typically circulate in any year, which is why attempts are made to make vaccines against these few viruses. Um, however, those viruses typically result in a more severe illness. You generally can't get up and go to work if you've got the flu. Body aches, as you mentioned, Janice, are one of the hallmark um, symptoms of this. And uh, fever, also very typical, can be severe fatigue, is, is very common. Um, so this is typically a severe, more severe illness that will, you know, incapacitate you for at least a couple days usually and then before you start getting back on your feet. Now acting quickly is really important so as soon as I felt a little achy I thought oh Mm -hmm. get the big guns out get Mm -hmm. started and I uh, by the next day I felt just like I had a little tickle in my throat or a sore throat. I did not have any more flu symptoms so I felt like that was a pretty quick recovery but it takes lots of um, fast action on your part so that that doesn't escalate. Yeah, the earlier you can get, and more quickly that you can get your white blood cells activated, try doing what you can to increase their number and activity, and there's ways of doing that, then the better off you are at fighting either a cold or a flu, any type of viral illness, really. Mm-hmm. And so when you say you think you're getting sick, uh, or you know you're getting sick, so um, give us an example of when you think you might be getting sick, and you're not sure. Oh, you got that first tickle in your throat. Some Sometimes people will say, I just, they don't have any particular symptoms, but I just feel like I'm coming down with something. I, I hear this actually quite a bit. And 
or especially if you've got that tickle in your throat. I mean, I even woke up this morning with a little bit, I don't know, my throat seems a bit sticky or dry or something along those lines. And so I'm chewing and hopefully you won't hear me chewing throughout the show, <laughs> um, some uh, echinamide quick blast. These are little chewable soft gels that help provide instant relief because I want to also help clear my throat for speaking during the show with um, eucalyptus, peppermint, lemon in a base of honey with Echinamide. It's a it's a super strength echinamide um, concentrate. So the the echinamide is an echinacea patented echinacea extract that helps to um, activate the white blood cells. Mm. And then the other ingredients helps to sort of unstick and untickle the throat, help soothe and open the sinuses. That and you kind know of thing. when you arrived here, um, your your voice sounded good, and then I could hear just a little a little stickiness, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a little tickle. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you took that. You took two of them and mm-hmm. immediately your voice cleared up and strengthened. Definitely my, you know, my nasal passages, my nose are all completely cleared up and my throat is sort of 80% better with mm-hmm. with just a couple of them. So, and I really like these as well for travel because they are little soft gels and it's, you know, tricky to travel with liquids. Yes, Take yes. these in your carry-on mm-hmm. and you've always got that with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. besides giving you symptom relief quickly, do they actually do anything to help fight the cold or flu? Like, this little tickly throat, you don't know if it's just too much talking this morning mm-hmm. or whether yep. something's starting to develop. You don't feel like you're getting sick, so maybe you're not. Maybe you are. So if someone thinks they're getting sick and they use this, uh, you can get symptom relief. But might it also fight off the virus? Yeah, the echinamide that's in here, it's a, it's a patented extract of echinacea that is standardized to three different active ingredients in the echinacea. It's fresh extracted. So there's three different harvests of the echinacea, um, which pertain to the, you know, the peak levels of these three different active ingredients. Then they are combined in a specific ratio that has been shown in laboratory and clinical research to help um, with preventing colds and flu, uh, cold in particular, and because it it does that by helping the white blood cells that are our first line of defense, our innate immune Mm -hmm. system, to fight off those those Mm -hmm. bugs. What about the other ingredients? Would they... fight off a virus? Uh, the other ingredients are more about no, soothing. Those, those are more about soothing and symptom relief. Eucalyptus to open the sinuses mm, and peppermint yes. as well and mm-hmm. lemon um, and honey. Well, actually, honey is a little bit soothing to the, yes. the throat and can help a little bit with a cough. So there's a, when it says quick blast, there's actually a little blast of... It's a true little the, blast. Yeah, the, the peppermint <laughs> yeah. Um, and eucalyptus that... Yeah. That opens up the nasal passages, makes you feel clear-headed, mm-hmm. um, and uh, but then the honey soothing and the lemon, so there's a nice taste along with the blast. Yes, that's right. Yes, the blast—it's strong, mm-hmm. absolutely, um, and uh, strong in a good way. I think strong in a good way. You really do. There's no doubt that it's doing something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can For sure. It, yeah, and so that's just uh, a quick little thing you can carry with you. You can have if you get. Uh, uh, that little tickle, you've got a sore throat, you need to clear your throat up, nice. uh, your uh, sinuses mm-hmm. are congested, and it's going to give you quick relief right away. Yeah, and I was saying a nice for travel as well, nice on the plane. If you happen to get dry throat on the plane, the, you know, the plane can be very dry, mm-hmm. really helpful for that as well. Yes, it can, and also uh, this can set the stage for us because we're in a closed environment with lots of people who have viruses. Mm-hmm. Uh, being there can set the stage as well as, you know, the time that it takes to travel and the stress of that, or maybe the time zone change. Uh, and so this is just a little boost in the opposite direction to help you, yeah. you know, fight that off. That's it. Now, if 
uh, you are actually getting the flu, Mm -hmm. uh, what would you suggest would be the most important thing you could do? If, if you know you're getting the flu, then I would definitely, the, the first thing I usually start is with the antiviral formula, which is a combination of echinamide as well as four other herbs that have been shown to have antiviral properties um, and immune supportive properties, astragalus, lomatium. There's a little bit of licorice in there as well. And this is one that I will take in usually one to two dropper fulls, even as much as once an hour acutely, you know, during that first day when you feel those symptoms coming on. Me and, too. I'll, t- I'll tell yep. you, uh, as soon as I think about um, well, even with a cold, I will use it, but especially with a flu, and I will be very aggressive with using it until my symptoms turn around and I've given them a few hours to show me that they're going to stay, you know, on the downslide instead of improve because it, I don't mean improving, increasing, right. because they will increase unless you take action. That's right. And I think you have a method where you put a couple dropper fulls into a glass of water, right? And sip that for a I few hours that eight. year. Dropper fulls oh, you in a eight, tall glass right, of water and drink that. a quarter of that every half hour for two hours. Okay, sorry. I was, I was. Can you repeat? Eight in one in one tall glass one of tall water glass. and then drink a quarter of it. So basically, two dropper fulls every half hour, mm-hmm. and then at the end of the that tall glass of eight dropper fulls, if the symptoms haven't disappeared, I repeat that mm-hmm. until they disappear. And then I take it less often after that, but I still take it for a few days mm-hmm. because I know I've been dancing with viruses that would like to completely knock me out. <laughs> right. That's exactly right. And they are, they are all around at this time of year. And exa- when you start feeling those symptoms, they've already been in your body for, you know, as many as, a, you know, as a few days even. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Your body's been fighting. It says, <clears throat> I give up. I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. And then you get the symptoms. So yep. you really need to recognize that. And I've said this, I've said this and said this over the years. Um, and I usually take my own advice, although sometimes I don't. You tend to think, oh, well, it's just a little tickle. It's just a little ache. It's just a little tiredness. Mm-hmm. But it's more than that. It's your body saying, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, that's right. It's your immune system struggling with what, you know, is is floating around. And so... Uh, I love antiviral. It works really well. And I think of it like this. It's not, it's not killing the viruses. It's enabling my body to kill the viruses. Would that be correct? Exactly. Yeah, that's right. We have systems and uh, in, in our immune system, we have mechanisms to help deal with viruses in particular and other kinds of invaders and pathogens. And it helps those systems work more efficiently by upregulating, activating the white blood cells that work in that way. Now, uh, what would you consider the big guns when we're really getting sick mm-hmm. and certain kinds of viruses settling in very uncomfortable places? Yeah, well, I, I actually find there's a few things that, that you can do, and depending on what's going on and, and your experience, oil of oregano is a nice thing to have in your natural medicine cabinet for that reason. And I have to admit that for years I was uh, reluctant about oil of oregano because uh, it, it's, you know, studies show it's a great antifungal, it's a great antibacterial, but research around its antiviral properties were lacking. And so in my mind, I, I wasn't going to bother with it. And yet there were just so many people, and there are, there are absolutely just so many people who swear by the fact that when they are getting sick, that this is the thing that knocks it out for them, that um, 
I couldn't ignore it. And so the anecdotal evidence is strong, even though we don't see the science for the bac- for the viruses. Sorry, we do see it for the bacteria. That's right, that bacteria correct? and fungus, well, and not and not so much for the viruses. And yet, uh, yes, I just know endless amounts of people who swear by it. And true enough, so so I sort of wore me down. And last year, I started trying it myself, and sure enough. It seemed to work, st- stop things in its tracks when I thought I was getting sick, mm-hmm. when I knew I was getting sick, mm-hmm. actually. Um, oil of oregano can be really, it's strong, but it can be really effective. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, to, not to use this all the time, but bring it out when you need it uh, for fungus, for viruses, um, and, and bacteria, sorry, and even for viruses to mm-hmm. give it a go. How do you take oil of oregano? You can take it in either a liquid drops. It's very strong tasting. And so you might want to put that if you're going to do liquid drops, I'd say about four drops. And this is, well, the natural factors is already pre-diluted. So it's 100% wild crafted um, oregano, oil of oregano that is combined in a one to four dilution with organic cold press extra virgin olive oil. So that makes it suitable for direct use, either drops straight onto the tongue or onto um, topically for um, topical fungal infections, for example, toenail fungus, that kind of thing. So you could put this right on your toenails? You could, yes. It's diluted already appropriately for that. Yeah, put it right on the toenails and then you'd probably want to wrap those up in some, say, plastic and put this on before bed at night or while you're walking around during the day just so you don't get the oil all over everything. Mm -hmm. Or maybe put on some old socks. Or put on some Mm -hmm. old socks, yeah. Mm -hmm. They'll they'll get messy, but Mm -hmm. um, Mm that works. um, In terms of um, oil of oregano, one area that I have seen so much benefit is sinus. Yes. Very, so what's happening there? It is quite decongesting to the sinus. We know there is an uh, antibacterial property with oil of oregano. So to the extent to which there may be bacteria in there, that is effective. But it just does have a, a decongesting effect that can be very helpful for the sinuses. Again, I really like the liquid for that. But it, for people who just find that's far too strong because it really is very strong, then soft gels are available mm-hmm. and that's convenient. And, you know, um, you mentioned putting four drops on your tongue and drinking something. I've come so that I can take half a dropper full mm. or more, just putting it on the back of the tongue and then drinking something. So it's very strong tasting, but I don't want it to get on my lips because then it feels like it's irritating the skin. Mm-hmm. But if it stays in the back of my mouth, it's strong, but it's not irritating those tissues, mm-hmm. which is a bit surprising. But uh, I found that with a little practice, um, that's the best way for me, rather than trying to put it in a little bit of water. And now you have something bigger to swallow. Agreed. Yes. Getting it on your Putting lips it into water more. will get it all over your tongue and may get it on your lips. <laughs> yeah. So I like to keep it irritating. small and down there fast. Yep. And uh, I've found that with a little practice, that's become easy to do. So, Mm -hmm. you know, oregano oil comes out when I feel like I need something stronger, bigger, more potent uh, to fight off whatever the virus, bacteria. I've used it equally for viruses, bacteria. Um, and fungus. Mm-hmm. And it's also not something I would take every day. I know there are some people who advise that, and it's it's a strong antimicrobial. Uh, you, it could disrupt your uh, gut flora mm-hmm. by taking this on a daily basis. And even if you're just taking it for a short term, you know, supplementing with probiotics, which is a good thing at this time of year. And if you think you're getting sick, studies have shown that that helps prevent that. So um, not, it's not to be taken on a daily basis in so my books. So if you were taking this, you would take probiotic in the same day at a different time, mm-hmm. not the same time that yep. you're taking this. 
and use it for short-term and stop. And short-term can vary depending how sick you are. But just to remember, this isn't a daily supplement, but right. rather to use when you need it. Yep. Now, um, a lot of flu, actually, mm-hmm. I mean, some people like myself, if I get the flu, I tend to feel achy and very tired, and that's it. That's the general thing. But for a lot of people, flu is about the respiratory system. Uh, what would you suggest if your respiratory system is involved? Mm-hmm. Whether it's the flu or a cold or what's called a post-viral cough. Now, the last couple years, mm-hmm. uh, there were there was a you know some bugs that went around that left a what we what was had been called the hundred day cough. So people were well, but just kept coughing for weeks and weeks. You'd hear it all over town. Yes. And uh, what I really like for that is something called the lung, bronchial, and sinus formula. And it's a combination, fairly simple, but uh, well-known ingredients that can help uh, with inflammation in the sinuses and the bronchi. N-acetylcysteine helps thin mucus in that area, as well as bromelain. It's um, an enzyme that can help with inflammation in those areas. And some soothing herbs for coughs, marshmallow, mulland, wild cherry, it's a well-known cough herb, as well as whorehound, ivy. These are botanical medicines for cough. And I've seen really, really nice things for this post-viral cough or um, flus that you write, they do tend to settle in the lungs. It's one of the... Uh, and and can can have a severe and even hacking cough that goes along with them. I like that support for the lungs. And N-acetylcysteine, which uh, you mentioned uh, first in the ingredient list, Mm -hmm. is an awesome um, supplement for the lungs, Mm -hmm. um, for all different kinds of lung congestion, for people who get recurrent lung problems. Um, So could this be taken longer term? Absolutely, yes. Uh, N-acetylcysteine has been studied for individuals who have COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. It's it's a chronic condition which tends to get worse with time, uh, characterized by a lot of, uh, well, obstruction buildup in the lungs, difficulty breathing. And uh, this N-acetylcysteine in particular has has been studied and be found helpful for that. And this combination I've also seen to be helpful for that. Um, And um, what about asthma and things like that? Yeah, those also, as well, those conditions. Any, pretty much any condition that has a a lot of cough that comes along with it, Mm -hmm. then the lung, bronchial, and sinus formula can be a really nice choice. So, and we could use that preventatively if we tend to get problems there as well as treatment. Yes, yep. And would we take more for treatment than we would for, you know, if you have a lingering cough, would you take more than if you were preventing a problem? I would, yeah. Typically, um, the dose on this is one tablet three times a day. On an empty stomach is is best if you can. If if not, then with That's food hard it to will find also three times work. A day. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Morning and night usually, but three times can be hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be for treatment. That would be a, a treatment dose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then a, a preventative dose, uh, one to two capsules per day. Um, and now, um, I see that. Uh, there's been an increased interest in horseradish, not mm-hmm. just eating it with our roast beef dinner, but using it as uh, an herbal tonic. Yeah, that's right. You know, horseradish has actually been used for a long time in many parts of the world as an over-the-counter, natural over-the-counter 
relief for uh, colds and particularly sinus infections, sinus and bronchitis, and one that we haven't been using that much here in North America. And now we have ways of using it. I mean, you want to go, you know, old school, old fashioned for cough, a scoop of, a, a, you know, a big heaping uh, scoop of horseradish with or without some honey in it is a great way to go. That's not everybody can handle that. <laughs> can be very, very strong. Mm-hmm. But horseradish is also available in uh, enteric-coated tablets. And this horseradish respiratory relief uh, provides horseradish as well as um, garlic-rich echinamide that we were mentioning before and other herbs to help soothe the sinuses and the lungs. Horseradish has actually been studied head-to-head with Anti, two antibiotics. Um, oh, that's interesting. It has, yeah, and some mm-hmm. some German researches is used quite a bit in in Germany for sinusitis and bronchitis, and shows that it works just as well for both of those conditions, sinusitis and bronchitis. Even if the even if there are bacteria present, it's it's one of these conditions in which antibiotics is not necessarily the best course of action because it doesn't necessarily shorten the duration or severity of the illness. Mm-hmm. So nice. Uh, to be able to use those more sparingly and have some alternative approaches. And yes. so, yeah. You want to enable your body to get it. Otherwise, you might just get a recurrent infection over and over and over if mm-hmm. you continue to use antibiotics mm-hmm. because you're not enabling your body to figure it out and tackle it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that the horseradish formula says respiratory. And so you've got lung bronchial and sinus and you've got horseradish for the resp- uh, respiratory system. Uh, so how do we decide which one to use? We just have a minute to yep. make that summary. To be honest, it depends on which you respond to, and it's worth trying both. I tend to go for the lung bronchial and sinus in the case of cough, chronic cough, post-viral cough, uh, COPD, which is, you know frequently has a cough with it, whereas the horseradish respiratory, I, I tend to go for sin- sinus issues, sinus congestion, sinusitis, um, and possibly bronchitis if it's, um, yeah, phlegm. So, uh, again, could you use that all winter long as a preventative? No, I wouldn't use this as a preventative. I would just use this as a treatment. Okay. Yep. So the lung, bronchial, and sinus you could use as a preventative. Mm-hmm. The horseradish, again, when you start to get yep. sick and, That's right. and bring it on. So, um, so thank you, Dr. Kate, for uh, all of that great information. Colds and flu season, unfortunately, hmm. is coming up. <laughs> Most important message. When you get sick, act quickly and get rid of it quickly. Give your body the tools it needs to heal and restore as fast as possible. We'll be back with more of Just for the Health of It right after this. Welcome back to the second half of Just for the Health of It. And with us in studio for this half hour, we have uh, Dr. Kate Rayom, and we also are going to be welcoming, uh, goodness me's very own Sandy Pomeroy in just a few minutes. But right now, uh, Dr. Kate, before we leave this topic of cold and flu that we were just talking about, uh, the Mayo Clinic has come out and said, 
there's no such thing as the stomach flu. And that might make some people confused or even <laughs> like upset. What do you mean there's no such thing as the stomach flu? I always get that. So can you explain? That's right. Thank you, Mayo Clinic, for correcting us all. It's a point of order, really. It, there, there technically is no such thing as a stomach flu. That's a misnomer. But it's just a, a term, a colloquial term that we use for viral gastroenteritis. So it's a type of a seasonal illness that's common, especially at this time of year, although it can happen at any time of the year. But um, we say stomach flu. It's not influenza, but it's just a bug that settles in your stomach. It would make It's a virus that will make you feel sick. They seem to be more common the last couple of years. This may be why they've, uh, you know, come out <laughs> to correct us on, on this terminology. But um, yeah, it's, it's basically a virus that affects your gastrointestinal system, can be causing nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, upset stomach, any combination of those. Okay, so up until now, I've always thought if you get the flu, some people get the flu and they get stomach symptoms like that. Mm-hmm. Other people get the flu and they just get achy and tired. Or, you know, some people get the flu and they get respiratory mm-hmm. or lung or sinus congestion, whatever. And so does it really matter that it's not a flu virus? Not really. They are different bugs. And uh, and excuse me, the Mayo Clinic might correct me on that when I say bugs. Um, I don't mean insects. <laughs> they no, are different. No. <laughs> they are different microorganisms. They are With different viruses. People talking about eating insects in the future, we do need to right, clarify exactly. this. But this is, this is the kind of wording that we use. But no, they are different uh, infections, different um, viruses, but they're all viruses. And so to a certain extent, what we do to help with viruses will help with any of those conditions. Mm-hmm. But there are special considerations for viral gastroenteritis. Um, obviously, um, lots of fluids, keeping hydrated is very important. Consuming things that are gentle on the stomach, bone broth is wonderful. Um, clear liquids, herbal teas, these kinds of things are important, more so than when we're dealing with uh other, you know, true flus or other colds Mm -hmm. and things Mm -hmm. like that. I think every family should have bone broth at home in the freezer in case, Mm -hmm. because I know, mom, that when you get this stomach flu, nothing feels good except maybe bone broth. And bone broth is a great hydrator as well. It's it's been called Jewish penicillin, right? This Mm -hmm. was the old-fashioned chicken soup, best uh, remedy for a cold. So, and it's a wonderful thing in particular for uh, I'm, I'm still going to say it, a stomach flu. <laughs> <laughs> so, but we're not talking about um, like a powdered soup base. Oh, goodness, some people no. Use. Oh, goodness, no. <laughs> right. We're talking about real bone broth yes. in terms of being hydrating and nourishing and healing for the stomach flu. Yes, the minerals. Dare we call it that. <laughs> the minerals provide electrolytes, helpful for dehydration. The the collagen and, and other, um, the, the gelatin in the broth is very soothing for the tummy and, and the whole gastrointestinal tract. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to soothe and calm down and heal the gastrointestinal tract. Bone broth is a good thing as well as being hydrating. And a little bit of salt in there is a good thing too Definitely. for the digestive system. Mm-hmm. So now, might we use some of the same flu remedies that we talked about in the first half of the show? If we had the stomach flu, or do we need to treat it a little differently besides the hydration gentle on the stomach? Well, the slight difference is that the stomach flu and, excuse me, the viral gastroenteritis often doesn't announce itself. By the time you got the symptoms, you're sick, so prevention... You know, it may be too late as well as if it's if any of the remedies we were speaking about are very strong tasting and you literally can't stomach them, that can be more challenging. Um, But to the extent that you can, you know, trying to get those in or probiotics in um, anything that you can keep down. Mm -hmm. Okay. well, thank you for 
setting us straight so that we don't have to feel guilty when we say stomach flu, but we know that we actually mean something with a fancier name. Right. All right. Thanks so much. So joining us in studio now, we have Sandy Pomeroy, and she is a wonderful recipe developer, for goodness me. She's a teacher of Life Watcher. She was taught our very first Life Watcher class and still does so with great enthusiasm, and people love her as a Life Watcher teacher. And now she is also an author. Welcome to you, Sandy. Thank you very much, Janet. How do you like that? Sandy, author, how do you like that together? It still sounds a bit surreal. Yeah, doesn't it? It's just, um, well, congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations. So tell me, how did you get interested in cooking? Cooking has always been a passion of mine ever since I can remember. Ever since I was a child, I was interested in cooking. I was only about seven when I had my toy oven and used to put things together. So it's just always been a passion. I had a little oven too, but mine was not an easy bake (laughs) oven. It was old when I got it and it just got hotter and hotter. But I used to experiment as well. But uh, you went on to uh, fuel that passion. Uh, Tell me what happened as you grew older, still in childhood. I always wanted to cook. And so my mom said to me, if you like to cook so much, you know, why don't you make the uh, make a meal each week. So on the Saturday night, I would make a meal. It started about grade seven. I would check out the uh, Betty Crocker cookbook from the school library. I would take it Friday night till Monday. I would return it and then put my name on the list to take it home the next week. So I was always (laughs) looking through, trying to figure out what I would make. And then yes, every Saturday night, I would put the family meal on the table for my uh, three siblings. And my parents. Wow. So you're cooking for six. Yes. And uh, trying out new recipes all the time. All the time. Something different because back in the day, we grew up on meat and potatoes. So it was very different. We'd have chicken a la king or we'd have lasagna, things, tacos, things that were a little different. Mm. And so so this interest in cooking began when you were quite young. Um, And uh, I suppose that food, although it was delicious, wasn't always the healthiest. Right. We didn't seem to think about that back then. But when I look back, right, not as healthy, certainly, as what we're doing today. Mm-hmm. And what did your family and your siblings especially think about these meals that you made? They loved them because we were all around the same age and it was food that was different and tasty and something to look forward to. So they look forward to the meals and they gave you a lot of praise. They did. And recognition. So this gave you a special place in your family. Yes, it definitely did. I think this is important for every kid. And sometimes it's really hard to find that. So I want to say, you know, kudos to your mom for encouraging that. And uh, did she balk at buying different ingredients or was that okay? She was good with it. As long as I had the list to her, I think it was about by Wednesday, uh, she, that would give her time to buy everything and have it ready for me. So she gave you a lot of support to uh, to fuel this passion. And this is what we should do as parents. And yes. sometimes uh, we don't always recognize that uh, what they're interested in may become their lifelong work. Exactly. So how did you get interested in healthy eating and connect with Goodness Me? So I had a girlfriend say to me, you know, you're, you cook good, but it's not healthy. You should come to classes I go to and you'll see what healthy cooking is. And I was interested because my family was having, there were a few health issues. So I tagged along with her to goodness me and Janet, you were teaching a cooking class and I sat there and took it all in and I was really interested in all the information and it was something different for me. 
And the next thing you knew, I was signing up for all the classes, always making all the recipes and growing a real passion for healthy cooking. And in the beginning, I can remember thinking, this is weird because I have to change everything that I did and I can never cook the same. But as I got into it, I realized it was so much better. It tasted so much better. People were really raving more about the food because it was whole, real, delicious food. Mm -hmm. And that's how I got started. Well, I remember you in my classes. uh, You stand out uh, from those early years. And I would do a cooking class every week. I don't know how I did it. Running a business, five kids. It was exhausting. And you used to come up, well, you'd ask a lot of questions. And I knew that you were really interested in healthy cooking. But I also knew you had a lot of cooking know-how. It was very obvious to me. And uh, you would always suggest different classes. Why don't you do a class on this? Why don't you do a class on that? And I think, well, that's a good idea. And one day, what did I say to you? You said, why don't you do it? Yeah, I did. Why don't you do it? And, um, I, and you were quite taken aback by that. And in fact, years later said to me, you know, Janet, why did you trust me back then? But I knew that you had cooking ability, passion, and that you had such good questions that you really did understand the principles of healthy eating. And so you began doing cooking classes for goodness me. And I was so happy that you would do that because it, it just was a great help. And, um, and I could, I could turn my passion to talking and speaking and teaching, which was my real passion. I like cooking and experimenting, but not talking and cooking at the same time isn't always easy. No, it isn't. No, but you do it very well. So thank you for all those years. It's been over 20 years you've been doing cooking classes at Goodness Me, and uh, 18 years you've been doing our Life Watcher program, and, um, and that's awesome. And all through those years, for many times, we've talked about you writing a cookbook. Yes, always talked about it, never really did it, and <laughs> here we are. And here we are. The time is right. And so your cookbook has just come out this week. Uh, we have a copy right here. We do, and I've been really quiet so far because I'm busy flipping through this beautiful book, looking at, especially excited about the breakfast recipes, um, chocolate zucchini muffins, coconut pancakes, bacon and egg uh, cups with grain-free bread, uh, triple coconut pancakes, excuse me. I'm just wondering why a grain-free cookbook? Why was that the route that you took? I think because of my interest in Goodness Me and Life Watchers, that's become a way that I eat. And I realize so many people are doing grain-free today. It's it's actually really trending right now. There's different ones you might have heard of, paleo, you might have heard of keto, you might have heard of uh, the Life Watcher diet. And a lot of these cut out foods that cause inflammation. And certainly for me, that became a priority. And I realized that I just loved the way my body felt when I ate grain-free and was able to eliminate a lot of those flours and and things that the carbohydrates that are so easy to grab yet don't nourish our body. And, you know, uh, your healthy cooking has evolved through the years. And, and part of the thing that has influenced that is certainly the needs of the people who come to your cooking classes the needs of the people who come to Life Watchers, and then your own situation. So tell us how uh, grain-free has been helpful to you. Yes, well, for years, I knew something was wrong, and I would go to the doctor to seek help and never really got a diagnosis until a couple of years ago of um, MS. And 
although I've known since 1986 I had it, I didn't really get the diagnosis. And I found a few years back that by eliminating the grains and really following the Life Watcher principles, I was able to feel a lot better. And so I really decided when this book opportunity was thrown at me, I was going to do something to do with grain-free And then this keto diet has come out. And so I put some keto options in there. And all keto really means is low, low fat. And instead of low, low 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 carbs, I'm sorry. (laughs) And instead of, and it's high, high fat. And what happens is your body starts to burn fat for the fuel instead of carbohydrate. And this way makes me feel very good. I don't feel inflamed in the morning. I can jump out of bed without the stiffness. And I realized also this type of eating helps diabetics. It helps people with autoimmune you know, it keeps the inflammation down. And even certain people with other illnesses have good relief from this type of eating. And it isn't hard to do and it's fun. So, you know, this isn't a weird cookbook. This is normal food for normal people. It just doesn't have flowers in it that we know of, like wheat no flowers. And no flowers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Kate, can you comment on grain-free and autoimmune and how that might be a benefit to Sandy and to so many other people? Well, like Sandy was saying, grain-based foods can be some of the most inflammatory foods in our diet for a number of reasons. But particularly when it comes to autoimmune, the body can react against certain uh, components of grains that triggers this reaction that ultimately ends in our immune system attacking itself. So because that's often the trigger or it can exacerbate that process, by going grain-free, it can really help to alleviate the pain and inflammation with autoimmune conditions. And so I think, um, you know, we we often recommend um, uh, gluten-free for an autoimmune condition, but there's a lot of confusion around gluten-free. So Sandy, maybe you could comment about that. Um, And it doesn't always lead to the health that people want. That's absolutely right. And there is a lot of confusion around it. So gluten-free, what that means is the protein enzyme in the wheat is not there in these gluten-free grains. And there are many, many gluten-free flours that you can purchase. Grain-free is also gluten-free, but doesn't have any of the grain flours in it. And what happens when we do, when we switch everything to gluten-free and just start buying gluten-free bread, gluten-free cookies and things, the carbohydrate quite often, and in fact, most of the time goes up. And in fact, I put a chart in my book about that of different pastas, just so you could see how the carbohydrate goes up. So there's no gluten, but you're still eating a lot of processed carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. Whereas grain-free, we cut that out and we're using more like almond flour, coconut flour, things like that. Mm -hmm. And you know, uh, it wasn't always like that because in the beginning there weren't gluten-free foods available very much. So, you know, a carrot is gluten-free, an apple is gluten-free, an egg is gluten-free. Um, but now there's a lot of very unhealthy gluten-free options. So people think they're going to eat gluten-free for health and they're making big errors, eating a lot of refined starches, a lot of sugar. Um, and like you say, high um, insulin spiking, glucose spiking uh, carbohydrate foods that are undermining the very help that they're seeking. At the same time, I know, and I think that people listening might get a little bit scared off when they hear grain-free in particular, because some of our favorite comfort foods are in that base. So things like baked goods and pastas. Um, what do you, 
have to say about that? What does the book have to say about that? That's a really good question. And for me, I love comfort food. So I incorporated a lot of comfort foods into my book, things that make me feel better. So, you know, there's bacon in my book. There's a lot of meat in my book. There's delicious, creamy dressings. And so I really incorporated that because, you know, we we are creatures of habit. We want to eat well. So it doesn't mean we have to just curl up and die and to eat healthy. We can eat all of these foods just with a few little tips on how to make them a little less inflammatory and a little more, you know, healthy for you. Mm-hmm. And it's not, um, once you uh, adopt those principles, it's not restrictive. It's freeing and satisfying and delicious. Now, let's go back. You'd wanted to write a book for a long time. and I wanted you to write a book for a long time, and it's finally come to pass. What were your goals in writing this book? Who were you writing it for? The basic reason I wrote the book is I just want people to get cooking. I realize today there's many people that still don't really prepare meals and food, and that was my goal. I wanted the working mom or a working person to be able to come home from work and be able to put out a simple meal on the table by opening up the book and not being intimidated. I wanted a senior citizen to be able to make a simple pot of soup without having to open a can. And all of these would be much more nourishing than processed, bought food. So that was really my goal. University students, um, just basically everyone could mm-hmm. could make recipes from this book. Mm-hmm. I know that you, um, you wrote, uh, you know, I want the exhausted parent who comes home from work to put something healthy and simple on the table. But I also want sick people to feel better without feeling like they're being deprived. And I want elderly people to be enabled. I want them to look at the recipe and say, I can do that. Um, I want young people to be able to learn the skills. And this is a really big thing because a lot of people are not learning to cook. They're doing lots of eating. They're not doing a lot of cooking. Um, And so when when you put this book together, you were thinking about all kinds of people, younger, older, sick people, people who are well, um, families. I was. I was thinking about seniors like my mom. I was thinking about kids like my children who work full time and, you know, have to come home. I was thinking about um, one of the young moms I work with who she said, I'm exhausted by the end of the day and I want to put healthy food on the table. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about those types of people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, in the early years of Goodness Me and um, I had little kids and it was like so busy, but I thought I have opened this business to help my family and other people be healthy. And so I need to put healthy food on the table. And I had a big determination about being, um, about bringing that to pass. But I find that today, for today's young families, there's so many pressures and so many easy options, not healthy, easy options, easy outs, that it becomes, unless they're very determined, it can become very hard. So I love that you're going to make that easy for them. Right. I don't want them to be too overwhelmed. And that was what the book was about, keeping the recipe simple and doable and healthy. Now, Dr. Kate, you have young children. What recipes in there do you think are going to appeal to them? Well, I, I was, as I was saying before, I'm especially excited about the breakfast recipes because that has really stumped me in terms of quick, tasty, healthy, because there's a ton of uh, quick, unhaste, untasty, uh, or excuse me, tasty but unhealthy breakfast options. And so, um, the the uh, coconut pancakes, the um, broccoli and 
uh, cheddar breakfast bites, the uh, chia uh, breakfast parfaits look really good. But I think um, I'm going to make the Southwestern salad. This is not a breakfast thing, but this will be my first um, Southwestern. Southwestern salad with green goddess dressing will be okay. the first recipe I make. First one you're going to make. Yeah. And along with uh, definitely the the breakfast, all the breakfast recipes. I mean, the cover features these beautiful chocolate zucchini muffins. And those will be a simple <laughs> thing that my son can grab as he's heading out the door in the morning, my older son. Absolutely. And you know, um, I, I haven't seen the finished book until this week, but I did some editing. So I got a chance to have a sneak preview at all the recipes and read them over and uh, check them out. And so I made those chocolate zucchini muffins for four grandchildren who were staying with me for five days. One of them said to me the first night, Grandma, we're going to be here for five years, she said. And we had a little fun going around the table to see where everybody would be in five years. But in any case, it was five nights that they were with me, with my husband and I. And uh, we had a lot of fun. And I made those muffins. And they pestered me constantly. Can we have another one of those muffins? Can we have another one? They loved them. Um, And so... You know, that's certainly one of the ones. And I also made the triple coconut pancakes um, for a different set of grandchildren who were staying over. Um, And those were awesome for my husband, who's diabetic. I mean, uh, I think you give them a keto designation, Sandy, and that, you know, anything keto is is great for any diabetic. And uh, most of the grain-free ones are as well. Now... um, we were talking about grain-free and gluten-free. I just want you to clarify uh, the grain-free, gluten-free. Maybe, uh, Dr. Kate, you could just clarify, because people are big on gluten-free and they get confused. Mm -hmm. So gluten is found in some, but not all types of grains. Uh, It's found particularly in wheat, but as well rye and lesser amounts in spelt and some other types of grains. Uh, But all grains, even non-gluten-containing grains like rice and other, other grains, are quite high in carbohydrate and potentially inflammatory. So uh, all, uh, not, excuse me, all grain-free diets are gluten-free because there's just no grains. So but every recipe in this book is gluten-free. That's right. Every no recipe in, any in this book, Grain-Free Goodness, is gluten-free. Over 125 grain-free recipes, they are all gluten-free. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as we are saying before, you can be on a gluten-free diet, still eating tons of grain, tons of carbohydrate, right. and you know, not right. reaping so the not benefits. So they're not the same designation. They're not the so same. So grain-free is like a step up from gluten-free. It's gluten-free plus plus. Um, now, uh, before we run out of time, let's have a brief conversation about keto. What is that? Sandy, you explained that a little bit earlier on, and a low-carbohydrate uh, diet. So what would the difference be? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sandy gave a good explanation of that. But basically, keto is short for ketogenic diet, which is a diet that is v- extremely low in carbohydrate, very, very high in fat, and contains some protein. Uh, we've, you may have also heard of LCHF, low carb, high fat diet. There are there's a slight difference between those, but you know they're more or less the same thing. And the idea here is that you are eating virtually no carbohydrate, which forces your body to burn fat as a fuel, as a as a byproduct of this. Well, it, it burns fat, it, then it com- is converted to something called ketones, ketone bodies, this compounds that you will burn as fuel. And there are ways of testing if you are truly in ketosis. In other words, if you are eating little enough carbohydrate. 
Uh, there are some pros and cons to this, but many people ha- can find it helpful for inflammatory conditions. Certainly if I had uh, cancer, uh, dementia, this would be the first, or, or an autoimmune condition, this would be the first type of diet I would adopt. It can be a challenging diet early on. Um, Some people, particularly early on, may find it challenging for mood. Uh, So you have to to do that carefully, as well as in conjunction with intense exercise. You may need some more carbohydrate if you're depleting your body's glycogen stores or work with somebody who knows about it. But um, although I've I've dabbled with it, Sandy can speak to it better in terms of living on this kind of Mm -hmm. diet. And so, Sandy, I know that you uh, eat keto uh, and also grain-free. So you sort of go back and forth a little bit to a bit more carb and a bit less carb. Yes. And you find that works really well for you. Yes. For the most part, I like to do keto. Sometimes the opportunity doesn't always, you know, warrant. It can be difficult to do. So if I do slip out of the the ketosis diet, I would go into grain-free and then back. And and so this gives you freedom. It gives me freedom. And you're not feeling so restricted and that is good. Well, I just want to say to all of our listeners, run, don't walk, and get yourself a copy of Sandy's new book. It's called Grain-Free Goodness, full of delicious recipes. I know you will like them, and she's made it to be easy, uh, and recipes that your family, the whole family will love. Uh, So uh, get cooking, and then come back and tell Sandy or myself uh, or one of our other staff what your favorite recipes are. And Sandy, thank you. Congratulations. Um, You've done a wonderful job. Thank you very much, Janet. Thank you. And Dr. Kate, thanks for joining us and for sharing in that conversation. You're welcome, Janet. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. So um, today, goodness me, run in, get yourself a copy of Grain-Free Goodness, um, available also at goodnessme.ca. And I want you to remember the power to change your health. It's in your hands and the time to do it is now. Have a great week.